Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Tristan Harty. Tristan is the Managing Director at Harty Wealth Management Limited, a financial advice firm based in Chester, Cheshire. Tristan, welcome to the programme and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a real pleasure, Tristan. Now, the purpose of uh, this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader on its own, first and foremost, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it really resonate? Uh, So I think for leadership, I see a big difference between leadership and manager sort of ship or management. Um, For leadership, it's the person who defines the vision and keeps things moving forward. They're sort of the figurehead and have to do the inspiration side. Um, whilst I would say that the map, because there's a, can be a bit of a mix between whether someone's a leader or a manager. And I think I, I see a manager as someone who enacts the leader's sort of vision. Mm. But for me, leadership is all about clear vision and actually just communicating that so that people understand what's going on. I can certainly see where you're coming from in that respect, Trist, in the sense that management and leadership are sort of separate things fundamentally. I think within leadership, however, there is also a degree of people management that has to come into the equation, doesn't it? Because I think communication, being able to manage people, they are still very important aspects from a leadership perspective, aren't they, that sort of have to be taken into consideration? Yes, definitely. I think that it's important that a strong leader has the ability to communicate to their managers or to whoever it is that they're needing to communicate. And several communication skills are a massively important part. I also believe that you have to learn to become a leader. I, I think some people are naturally more like leaders, but you can't, it's just not something that comes completely naturally. The more experience you have at leading, uh, sort of leading from the front as such, you end up actually growing more and becoming a better leader through experience. And I think obviously what's been going on over the last couple of months has meant that all of us have had to actually grow very, very quickly. Mm. Now, I've had this discussion uh, before with uh, several people, Tristan, and I've always asked them, um, do you think there are positives to actually come from this quite tragic and quite difficult time in the sense that it will enhance our development fundamentally as both leaders and as employees? And the reason for that is because it's vital experience of crisis management on the one hand, but also we're hearing so many fantastic stories of people who are really pushing the boat out, going out of their comfort zones and just going above and beyond to just keep things ticking over. And development-wise, that breeds resilience. Um, it's vital experience again. There are some benefits to really take out of this, aren't there, in that sense? Yes, there are. Um, obviously, as you said, there, there's been a huge amount of suffering and a lot of negatives that have obviously occurred. But coming out of it, I think resilience is a big one. It's pushed people to different limits that perhaps they didn't know that they had. So now that they can actually go further and be better as people going forward in terms of their careers and perhaps on their own personal side, they've hit sort of their resilience has gone up to such a point that they probably never even imagined ever feeling the amount of stress that they have over the last sort of eight to 10 weeks, but they've actually experienced it and come through it. I also think that it's forced technology forward. Mm. I think we would have gotten to where we were with technology anyway over the next five to 10 years, particularly sort of the movement towards 
uh, what's the exact word, sort of the uh, working from home side, there's mm-hmm. been sort of rumblings about that happening for a few years, particularly in Europe and so on. And I think this has shown that it is possible for most of the businesses in the UK to be able to work from home, which might change how the working week actually looks for most people, giving more of a sort of a work-life balance. I would say, strangely, it may have moved us forward five to ten years. I think um, that's um, absolutely right, Tristan. Um, It really has forced the hand of uh, businesses to innovate, and it has been more of a seamless transition for some than others, um, I guess. And given how that transition has essentially had to be taken for yourselves um, as well. Um, have you actually been inspired, would you say, um, by the response that your team have uh, put in, considering the stories that we've heard from across the country, not just from the front line, but also from those who have had to adapt to remote working as well? Oh, definitely. Um, my team have been massively inspiring to myself, and it's been amazing the way that they've stepped up. Uh, it's sort of, um, we've always had plans in place if, not obviously if something like this is going to happen. We had it if, say, the office had burnt down or something like that. So we had a disaster relief plan sort of in place. So we just in that did that. And it was amazing how quickly everyone in the office was able to do that, how they've adapted from working from home. Many of them are actually working more productively now from home. Mm. There are other difficulties that have come from it. Um, it's interesting, the social aspect, you don't quite realize how big a thing it is going into an office and just sitting next to other people and talking to them. Uh, but so we've been doing other things to sort of try and fix that. But actually, I, it's been really inspiring how our team have pulled together so that they have been able to they've probably become more of a team than they were before, despite being less mm. physically present. And that's incredibly interesting as well. I mean, it is a period that has brought us closer together, even though we are very much at a distance. And that's also taken um, another important um, aspect of leadership to keep that uh, sort of going, um, hasn't it? And that's the importance of keeping the communication channels open and being very much transparent from a distance, of course, albeit we do have the technology. That can still be quite a challenge, as well as providing vital reassurance to people who will be looking to lead us for that, even though there's still a great deal of uncertainty um, out there as to the regards to the future as well. Um, how have you found it sort of dealing with those pressures yourself um, as a leader, Tristan? Um, do you think you've handled that quite well? Uh, I think I've put it as well as can be. Um, I think one of the, the difficult part of being the leader is you feel more alone on it mm. because you're having to shoulder, from our side, we're having to shoulder the burdens of making sure that our team feel safe, secure, and knowing that everything's going to be okay. But then we have the flip side of doing the same for many of our clients. And it's then more a case of as the leader of that, you're, you do feel slightly alone occasionally on it. But there's ways and techniques of sort of dealing with that sort of mindfulness things, which I've been doing a lot more of. Um, finally taking up meditation, which I've been told I should, be do- have been, should have been doing for years. And it has been very useful to sort of explore new things with the additional time that I've had of not having to travel to and from the office. And given that, of course, um, there'll be a lot of clients out there who are in need of uh, the support that you do provide. Um, it's it's a period that still kept you busy, hasn't it? I don't. I, I imagine that business hasn't suffered overall as a result of uh, this period. No, we've been very busy. Um, we've been very busy making sure that we're constantly in communication with all of our clients so that they understand what's going on uh, within the financial markets, what's changing, uh, what sort of trends we're seeing. Uh, we're sending out regular sort of uh, emails and communications. Any client can have a call whenever they want. Um, so there's been a lot of time spent 
on phones and of course video calls have become sort of the new normal which is a term I'm not particularly a big fan of but it's everywhere mm. now and it's from our side we've probably been as busy if not slightly busier um, than normal and I think that probably comes from the fact that there's less of a divide now between work and home so it definitely feels busier because mm. when you're at home it, you're I always used to keep everything separate, and I think a lot of people used to do that. But now, because the two have sort of merged, it can feel that we are busier. But I think we're probably about the same as we were pre-sort of the, the pandemic starting. And I think that renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this time will be really important, uh, considering that that line has been blurred, as you say, there between sort of the work and life firm environment, um, as it were. Um, we've talked already, Tristan, about, of course, the fact that you were very inspired by the response that your staff had put into uh, this uh, sort of meeting this pandemic, um, as it were. But um, if we maybe just sort of backtrack a little bit, what would you say have been some of the other big inspirations and perhaps even influences on you as you've developed through your own career? Uh, so in, inspirations in terms of um, outside inspirations, are you asking me that? Yeah, so essentially inspirations, um, so maybe people that you've uh, encountered during your career, people that you've looked up to, maybe ex- key experiences oh, yeah. that you've had. Um, so from my side, uh I think previous experiences in terms of that inspired me and kept me sort of going is one obviously has been uh, my father also works within our business and has gone through many different things over the last sort of 30 years. But one of the big inspirations was how my parents dealt with the loss of my sister. Uh, My sister died in 2009 and when she was only 16 and so the batch shock and the way that they dealt with that is a massive inspiration and always will be in sort of looking back in the way that they set up a charity to sort of help focus on the positives and so on. And actually, as part of the charity, we've been able to put a lot of our focus at this time into that as well, because the way that my sister passed away was actually through a sort of a misdiagnosis when there was the swine flu mm. uh, epidemic happening. So there has been a bit of a mental health aspect as well, where we're seeing people not going to hospital. So that has been quite difficult um, because we know that that will lead to unnecessary sort of death. Uh, I think in terms of other inspirations as well, I've uh, done quite a lot of, I did my degree was in uh, international politics at the University of Leeds. And so Eileen looks back and read a lot about different leaders who go through different periods. And I know a lot of people have mentioned people like Winston Churchill and sort of his Churchillian response. But for me, particularly at the start of the uh, pandemic, I think that Boris Johnson was quite a good inspirational leader, particularly in the first sort of four weeks um, before he came down with COVID himself, where he was very clear about what we should be doing. The government's message, I think, sort of drew the country together and created a bit of a spirit. Maybe that's sort of starting to disappear now, but I think at that time that was quite a big inspiration. It was a sort of a a nice to have a a hand. It felt like a hand holding us all all together so that Mm -hmm. we could keep moving forward. And um, channeling um, the experience that you have had, of course, not just, of course, drawing from these incredible individuals that you've learned from, but also your experience within business, uh, Tristan, if you were to actually give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role, what advice would you have to give them? I would probably say there's so much advice that you can give. It's really difficult to sort of pick one thing. But for me, it's listen. 
It's listen to your team and take the time to listen. So whether that's have a bit of time each day where they can communicate with you uh, in a simple, open way. Uh, obviously, back in the days before the pandemic, the answer would be have an open door policy. But for me, listening to our team is the most important thing. The way to build a great culture from the top down is to be accessible so that people can come and talk to you and actually share their feelings and concerns or any issues they're having within the workplace so that they feel safe and at the same time can also feel like they can grow and are a valued member of each team. I think that's incredibly sound advice um, indeed. And if we continue to think about the future just for a moment before we do wrap things up on the programme, um, when, of course, you um, wrote in the uh, the parliamentary review uh, back um, in the early part of uh, the year, you did say in the coming years you did hope to see the business expand from its current position in the market. Um, considering, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, has that really changed? And what now do you envision for the future of the business if it has? And especially that also counts for beyond this situation as well as we do move through the pandemic. So I think from our side, really, in terms of the changes, so we had a 10-year plan. It's now kind of become an 11-year plan. Mm. We've sort of seen that this year is a year to just hold and stay where we are, um, sort of consolidate everything. It may change in the future the way that we employ, um, uh, which isn't necessarily what the government want to hear at the moment, but because we may not need as much office space and so on, we may not have quite as many employees because we may... We won't be letting go of any. We'll, we will still be growing, but I can imagine that we we were sort of looking at maybe being at like the sort of 30 employee mark. That might be down at, say, 25 and so on because mm-hmm. of utilizing more technology. Um, I definitely think in terms of going forward, we're going to rely a lot more on the video technology. And we're finding that video meetings take less time than face-to-face meetings because you don't have as much of the preamble. And therefore we may actually end up having more time with, for ourselves in that sort of balance. I definitely think that if we all reflect on this period, one of the things that we all sort of will probably see is that getting that work-life balance is vital. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to be very intrigued over the next few years to see whether or not the United Kingdom slowly moves towards that sort of four-day working week mm. that a few of the European countries seem to be moving towards, where it's sort of work a bit smarter, but then have a bit more time off and sort of balance. But from our side, in terms of where it changes the goals of the business, it's almost like we just press pause for a year or so. Um, we're still not particularly confident towards the end of the year and where if things are going to change that much. There's obviously that concern of, will there be a second spike? What's going to happen with the economy side? But from our side, everything's completely secure. We just uh, sort of hang fire and wait and then wait till next year. and. Uh, continue with the original 10-year plan. It certainly seems like there's still a great deal of ambition amid all the uncertainty, Tristan. And as you say, it's going to be very interesting what that keyword, the new normal, is really going to look like and how the UK does fundamentally change in its working practices. And perhaps as we start to understand what sorts of changes are going to be in place over the next 12 to 18 months. I actually think it would be fantastic to even have you back on the programme with us, given how informative it's been today, just to catch up and maybe discuss how things have changed. Yep, definitely more than happy to come back on and uh, sort of talk about where we are in sort of uh, 10, 12 months' time, um, and hopefully it'll be all positive things. 
Hopefully so, uh, for sure. I think it would be incredibly interesting from a uh, listener's uh, perspective um, as well. It's a shame if we're just about out of time today, otherwise I'm sure we could uh, speculate um, all uh, morning and all afternoon about it. But I have to say, Tristan, it's been a fantastic experience having you on the uh, the programme. Very informative, but also a real pleasure. And do, most importantly, take care and stay safe with everything still going on, because as everybody knows, we're not quite out of the woods yet with this. Thank you for having me on, and uh, uh, stay safe yourself as well. Thank you. That was Tristan Harty speaking, the Managing Director at Harty Wealth Management Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. That would be the trade body for firms who provide such services for both individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when of course um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since... Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face mm. the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to... Um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. 
Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it maybe leaves you with quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I th- I think it's 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 a it's unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're, the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's, go- it's, just, it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Um, And financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money-type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um the better I think because that then we'll start to promote a culture of of savings and investments which we so badly need in our in 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 our um in our country. Without a doubt it's because and again you've hit the nail on the head because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you can, you, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think, as um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another. <laughs> a thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system, but ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, we, I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at, at a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if 
the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think I think that's, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know thirty first of January came and went, um, you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, mm-hmm. um, and for for UK. Um, savers and uh, and investors. Uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know. The, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter yes. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Euro- in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in- intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation, and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same piece, you know. Famous <laughs> aren't they? Indeed, I mean, absolutely, um, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yes. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the 
the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could. <laughs> Um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I would, my number one priority to, to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me! The one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter. Um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Now, I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at, um, at the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can 
that really is be underestimated the importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually Mm. but it's certainly something that that we have it in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I, I think that's the key point, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfa has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing, that you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter um, and what does what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward. But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it, um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just. Um, Kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of other of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things, and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> Liz, an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.